welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Heavenly Father, we ask for the word to be bread to us now, that you by the Spirit would feed us and make us strong. I ask for grace that you would speak and not me. In Jesus' name, amen. There are many prophecies about Jesus Christ that have not yet been fulfilled. When he ascended into heaven 2,000 years ago, he left many undone. This is why On the very day he returned to heaven, his disciples were still asking him, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Remember that? Just minutes, literally, before he ascended into heaven, the disciples are saying, are you going to finish the stuff yet? Because they knew the Bible. There were all kinds of prophecies that had not been fulfilled. Oh, he'd fulfilled, he'd fulfilled Hundreds of them. It was, it's amazing. It was said that he would be, from right from the Garden of Eden, the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. Well, here is a virgin conceiving a child and, and the Son of God becoming a man among us. It's said that he would be born in Bethlehem. He, he was raised in humble circumstances. He went to the cross. He, he ministered in the Galilee region. All of these things were prophesied, that his beard would be plucked out, that they would cast lots, that they would pierce him, that His bones would not be broken. I mean, just on and on. All these prophecies fulfilled. But there's many prophecies not fulfilled. There are many. You've got to know that. There are many prophecies waiting to be fulfilled. And the only way this can work is he came the first time to fulfill part of the prophecies. But he must come a second time to fulfill the rest of them. Why? Why? Why, did he, why, why didn't God just do it all at once? We're going to see that today. Why did God have to break this up so that Jesus Christ came twice? And I think as we see it, you're going to realize we ought to be just praising the Lord with all our heart that Jesus Christ did not just come once. If he came once, we'd be done. But he came twice, and that's the mercy of God. They had read the scriptures and they knew there was much more for him to do. These disciples, as they said, Lord, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And you remember Jesus' answer. It's none of your business. <laughs> Basically, he said, it is not for you to know the times and the epics. He was, he was more polite than I. Uh, he said, he said it is, but it's a father has appointed a time. And that's what you and I have been watching as we've been reading chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Revelation, we are looking into the heavenly throne room, watching the Father make the decision. Very shortly again, we're going to see the Father sitting in the throne, holding that scroll in his right hand, which is sealed with seven seals. The scroll, in my opinion, are the unfinished prophecies. Who is going to finish the job? Remember, it's written on both sides. It's full of unfinished prophecies, but it's sealed up. He cannot come and do these yet until that moment it's unsealed. He told them that the timing of those prophetic events wasn't something they could know, but instead they should rest assured the Father would fulfill those promises in his own time. Anyone who's studied the Bible knows why the disciples were confused. 
From his birth to his ascension, Jesus fulfilled many prophecies, but he also refused to fulfill others. Why? As we look again today at the book of Revelation, we'll discover the answer to this great mystery. Would you turn to chapter 5, Revelation chapter 5. We not only went through, we saw a portion of chapter 5, but we went through chapter 6 and saw the Lord breaking open uh, six of the seals on that scroll. But I want to develop another part of this uh, chapter further. And then we're actually going to chapter 7. So it's interesting preaching the book of Revelation. Verse 1. John says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book, a scroll written inside and on the back so full of things that it had to be written on both sides. Every available space is filled with writing. There's so much in it. And sealed up with seven seals. The unfinished prophecies that have not yet been completed, held in the right hand of the Father. Unless you understand that God planned two Advents. God planned from the beginning two comings, two times that Jesus would come. The first advent was that he came as a lamb. John the Baptist introduced him and said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. He came to atone for our sins so that when he came as a lion, listen, the second time he would not be forced to condemn to hell the entire human race. You see, I'm going to show you the prophecy, some of the prophecies that he's going to fulfill the next time. But what you need to know is the next time he's not a lamb. The next time he comes, the season of grace ends. The opportunity for men and women to repent is done. And the next time he comes, he comes to rule. He comes as a warrior. He comes as a judge. It's downright intimidating, some of the things that I'll show you. He comes powerfully and to, to destroy his enemies. You don't think of Jesus this way, particularly Christmas season. We think of Jesus as a baby. We think of Jesus as this, as this loving, tender teacher, powerful and, 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 and courageous, but, but nonetheless gentle-hearted. And of course he is. But he's also coming. It says that he will destroy the nations. There's pictures of him where he's treading the winepress of the wrath of God and his white robe is splashed with the red of the grapes. He is going to come in judgment. The second advent, he'll come a second time as a lion to judge the wicked, to destroy his enemies and to inaugurate an era of righteous government and even harmony in nature. Look at uh, verse 5 and 6 there in chapter 5. The question's been asked who is worthy to open the book, and now we find out who it is, and, it, and John describes him in, in prophetic language. He, the, well, the elder does. He says, stop weeping, verse 5, behold the lion that's from the tribe of Judah, and I told you that refers to the prophecy that Jacob made over his son Judah back in Genesis chapter 49 in which he prophesied over him, and he said that the, the, the ruler's scepter will not depart from Judah's, between Judah's feet 
until Shiloh comes. The word Shiloh means to him who it belongs. It was a prophecy that one of their family would rise up and that that king's rulership, that, that baton that kings hold, the scepter, would be held by him and that he would rule forever. And then when he did, it talks about this glorious prosperity that would come to the people of God as he ruled. Remarkable prophecy. John refers to him that way. And then he calls him next the root of David. And I told you about that one too. You remember this? This is the one where the tree is cut down and we have just a stump. And I'm going to show you that prophecy again in a minute. It's in Isaiah 11. And the picture was of David's dynasty being cut down like a tree until it's only a stump. And instead of dying, it's like one of those trees where you have a shoot that comes out of the roots. Instead of some trees die when you cut them off, some of them send up shoots from the roots. I, be, I like that better than calling it a sucker. Uh, agriculturally, when you have those things, you call them suckers. But I just have a hard time calling the Lord a sucker. And so we're going to call it a shoot from the root. Okay, so a shoot comes up from the root and starts an entire new tree, a new dynasty. But this one, uh, this one will be built on, on Jesus Christ. That's the reference there has overcome so as to open the book and break its seals. Now, turn with me to Isaiah 11. I want to show you this prophecy that is being referred to there. Isaiah 11, verse 1. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Who's Jesse? David's father. So this is a poetic way of describing David's family. A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. A branch from his roots will bear fruit. By the way, when you read through, this is just an aside. When you read through, you'll often see the righteous branch, phrases like the branch. That's the reference. It's talking about this Jesus, this, this Messiah who will come up from the root. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord and he will not judge by what his eyes see nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. Jesus Christ is going to come as a great judge who knows all things, right? By the way, let's count for a second. If we count the Spirit of the Lord as one, now let's go. The Spirit of wisdom is two. Spirit of understanding, three. Spirit of counsel is four. Spirit of strength is five. Spirit of knowledge is six. Spirit of fear of the Lord is... Whoa. Now, I don't suppose you still have it, but back in Revelation 5, the... I can just remind you, or you can look. We see a lamb, this root of David, we're told is a lamb, standing as if slain, still having scars on him. But he has, he's rather remarkable in appearance, if you take it literally, and I told you not to, because it's a monster when you try to describe this thing literally. Seven horns, and horns, we said, were animals used to fight with. So what does the horn represent? Military power in particular, yes. 
And then it has seven eyes. And I said, don't even try to imagine a lamb with seven eyes. It's a very ugly picture. So some young fella drew it for me and showed me on the way out. He says, Pastor, I drew that little lamb with seven eyes. I said, thank you so much. And it, it looked like a cross between a lamb and a fly, you know. If you go back into the middle, medieval art, uh, you, you have them trying to do this. I've seen several, several attempts, and it's just grotesque. You've got this burp, and then this eyes over all over the face, and it's like, oh, man, put it out of its misery. <laughs> the, point, the point is, seven being the, the number of fullness, he has all power, and he has all knowledge. He has the, and then, it, it, then John goes on to say it's the seven spirits. And you say, I thought there was one. It's, 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 again, it's, it's poetic language. It is talking. You notice here how many, how many there were here? The spirit of the Lord, spirit of wisdom, spirit of understanding, spirit of counsel, strength, knowledge, fear of the Lord. Seven. It's that kind of thing. All these things are in the Holy Spirit. When Jesus comes, he'll bring judgment. He's coming as a judge and he's coming as a warrior. And when he does bring judgment, he's going to bring perfect judgment. He will not have any prejudice. He will not have opinions or accusations that are made against people. He will know everything anyone's even thought. Isn't that, a, that, that an interesting concept? He knows our thoughts. He knows our motives. There'll be no excuses. No, I was a victim. No, my mother made me do it. None of that junk. It will not be a psychological therapy session. It will be a justice issue in which the truth will simply be brought out. He will come with seven eyes, as it, with the knowledge of the Holy Spirit, knowing all things. And he will judge not by what his eyes see in the natural, but he will know all truth. And then it goes on, verse 4. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips, I'm in Isaiah 11. Excuse me, I've got you. You're dancing all over, aren't you? And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. See, he's got seven horns. He's got all power. Just with a word, he will. And folks, when it talks about striking the earth, what he's going to do at one point is cause an enormous a uh, hailstorm, 100-pound hailstones are going to come down and crush a huge army, and it says that the blood will be up to the horse's bridles for 200 miles. I mean, when, you don't picture Jesus this way, but he's coming as a lion this next time. See, there's whole prophecies waiting to be fulfilled. And these, aren't, aren't we glad he didn't come as the lion the first time? We'd all just go up and smoke. But he didn't. Out of the love of the Lord, he came first as the lamb. So that for those of us who love him, we don't, we don't sit trembling in fear of his coming again, do we? We can hardly wait. We are not under judgment. For us, we cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is our deliverance. This is the beginning of our, of our heaven, of our, of our eternity when he arrives we are delighted to see him. But you see, we know him as the lamb. You must know him as the lamb, and then you have no fear of him as the lion, just joyful expectation of his, of his government. But if you do not know him as the lamb, 
He will be a fearful lion to anticipate. And he will judge. I mean, make no bones about it. We're in a, we're in a, a society where it's almost considered evil to hold anyone accountable. But we're not, it, it is not going to be in front of the American press or the American government that this, gov- this final thing will be held. It will be front before God. And God isn't swayed by the opinions of men. Look what, look what else goes on here. I love this next section. In fact, I put it, I put it in a song years ago. Uh, this is just so beautiful to me. Verse 6. And the wolf, here he comes. Now this, this, this lion is, comes and sets up his government. But look what happens when the lion sets up his government. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. And the leopard will lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little boy will lead them. And the cow and the bear will graze and their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like an ox. Picture that. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. In other words, there's no more poisonous reptiles and they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. No more carnivorous animals. No more carnivorous animals. Apparently, carnivorousness is a part of the fall. This thing of, this, of the jungle, of tearing things apart, uh, the violence that animals go through will be ended. And there'll be peace. Don't, doesn't, it even, doesn't it grieve you to see the violence in the world? Isn't it sickening to watch what people are doing to each other and to even see the violence in, 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 the, in the natural world? I, I, I find, this, I mean, it sounds silly, but I even hate to see roadkill. To see little things dying in the roads, it's kind of sickening. No roadkill when the King of Kings returns. Amen. Hallelujah. It all stops. Death and harm and pain and suffering and dying stops completely. When this lion sets up his rulership. Aren't you glad? I love it. Verse uh, 9 says, the, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There will be no spiritual confusion or deception. People will know the truth of the living God. There he is right before them. All this deception goes away. Now watch. Hang on. We're going to go on. I want you to see the next part. Verse 10. And then it will come about in that day that the nations, that's all of the peoples of the earth, will resort to the root of Jesse. They will gather to this Messiah, Jesus, who will stand as a signal for the people. Now, the word signal there means a battle flag, where they, you put up in, in the midst of a battle, they would hold up a flag, and when the, when the trumpeter would blow the trumpet, you would gather to the flag. I mean, you knew where your leader was. They were at the flag. It's called an ensign. And they will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. And then it will happen on that day that the Lord will recover again a second time with his hand the remnant of his people. Now, this is talking about Jews, Israel. He will gather them a second time. First time was in 537. The second time, he will gather them again from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, from the islands of the sea. He will lift up a standard, there's that battle flag, for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel 
and will gather the dispersed of Judah, that's the southern kingdom, from the four corners of the earth. And then the jealousy of Ephraim, the northern kingdom, will depart. And those who harass Judah, the southern kingdom, will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah. That separation of the nation of Israel will heal. And Judah will not harass Ephraim. And they will swoop down on the slopes of the Philistines on the west. And they will plunder the sons of the east. And they will possess Edom and Moab and the sons of Ammon. In other words, the Middle East crisis will be at an end and will be subject to them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the Sea of Egypt. That's, that's the, the Red Sea. And he will wave his hand over the river. That's the Euphrates. With his scorching wind. And he will strike it into seven streams and make men walk over dry shod. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant of his people who will be left just as there was for Israel in the day they came out of the land of Egypt. He is going to regather the nation of Israel. Do you see that? One of the signs of the last days is that more and more Jews will believe in Jesus Christ as their Messiah. There is going to be a work. I'm going to show you that. I'm going, to, I'm going to take it further. Part of what the root of Jesse will do, part of what this Jesus Christ that John is seeing now, and I'm going to show you this in the book of Revelation will do, is to reach out and gather in believing Jews in himself. They will believe in him. There will be a turning of heart, a great move. Now, go to Revelation chapter 7. What I'm about to read takes place before the great day of the wrath of God. This is something you've got to hold in your mind. You're going to need it all the way through this book. There are two sources of, pro of, of trouble. One comes from the tribulation, where the Antichrist, the devil, attacks the people of God. The tribulation of the saints. The other is the wrath of God. God is at work in these things. They are two completely different things. What we're about to see is the wrath of God. We opened up chapter 6 and saw these seals opened. We saw the, the Antichrist being released, remember? The white horse, the crown, he went out conquering. We went through this whole process as Antichrist swells in power and begins to extend his kingdom. And the, the three horns pulled out, remember? And the, You're not nodding, I'm hoping you do. Okay. <laughs> You need to go, oh, I got it, yes. All right, and then the seven in league with it, a ten-nation confederacy. I told you what you can watch for. I mean, it's really clear. that This is not something out of some paperback book. Uh, this, is, this is clearly what it says. Three will be uprooted, central kingdom from this Antichrist. Seven others will join. You've got ten nations. Wherever it's going to be, it's going to look like that. It's quite clear. So we saw all of that, and it was a sad story. I mean, we, we watched this emerging evil just sweeping over the planet. It was kind of heartbreaking to watch it take place. Well, now we come to the sixth seal, and remember when the seventh opened, the prophecies begin to be done. The prophecies of the end, the prophecies about Jesus, the lion comes. And so we're almost open, the seal is, uh, the last seal is almost ready to be broken. He hits the sixth seal, and you, and you start having God get into the picture miraculously. The wrath of God against sin and evil begins to go, and you see there this physical disturbances. You see this terrible earthquake, and you see the stars fall from heaven. All of this is starting to, to, to happen. Look at the last verse of chapter 6. 
For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So you get this sense, okay, the wrath of God is about to be poured out on the earth. And then this happens, verse, chapter, chapter 7, verse 1. The, after this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Now I'll, I'll explain that, what I think it means, another time. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. No wrath till we seal. Got it? God does not begin this, his process until he has sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now, what does that mean? They're going to mark people on their forehead. The wrath won't be poured out till the mark's been put on a certain group of people. Now, go back with me to Ezekiel chapter 9. I told you you're going you're to need tabs or memorize the book of Scripture. One of these days, I'll, I should have us do that again. We can sing through the books of the Scripture with the tune, She'll Be Coming Around the Mountain. <laughs> Mary invented that, and it works. I taught my Bible college classes. I made them do it. So every class, we'd open up singing, She'll Be Coming Around the Mountain, you know, to, all right, uh, you're back in Ezekiel chapter 9. Now, this is not an easy passage to hear, but it's what he's just referred to. You have to know what this means to know what Revelation just meant. Ezekiel is, going to, is prophesying that God is going to bring his wrath, his judgment onto Jerusalem. And here's what happens beforehand. Verse, chapter 9, verse 1. And he cried out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, this, this, this angel, Draw near, O executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. Behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his shattering weapon, I hate to think what that is, in his hand, among them was a certain man clothed in linen with a writing case at his loins. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar there in the temple court. Then the glory of God of Israel went up from the cherub on which it had been to the threshold of the temple. Now let's just see who remembers the book of Exodus. What does that mean that the glory of God went up from the cherub? Who remembers what cherub are we talking about? Yes, the cherub were the two uh, golden cherub on the, on the mercy seat, on the Ark of the Covenant. Remember the Lord said, my glory will settle there, and from there I will speak to you, right? So in other words, the Shekinah glory is now lifting out of the, out of the Holy of Holies and moving out from that place between the cherub. All right, to the threshold of the temple, <clears throat> And he called to the man clothed in linen, whose, at whose loins was the writing case. And the Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads 
of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. These angels are to go through the city and put this mark, it's a protecting mark, identify mine, the, the writing case, keep a record of those whose heart grieves over the evil that's going on, those who love me, those who, who follow me in their heart. Mark their foreheads. But the others, he said in my hearing, go through the city after him and strike and do not let your eye have pity and do not spare. Utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, little children and women. But do not touch any man on whom is the mark and you shall start from my sanctuary. And so they started with the elders who were before the temple. And he, and he said to them to file the temple and go and, and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. And they went out and struck down the people of the city. And it came about that as they were striking, I alone was left. Ezekiel's feeling very lonely at the moment, saying, Alas, Lord God, are you destroying the whole remnant of Israel by pouring out your wrath on Jerusalem? All right, now back to Revelation 7. I told you that wouldn't be easy to hear. God is about to get into the action. As we're moving now, we're, we're coming to the point where the wrath of God begins to move in the, in the trumpets and in the, in the bowls. All of this shaking is going to happen. But God says, I will not do anything till I've marked mine, till I've marked those who love me. And notice who he marks in this case. I heard the number. 144,000 sealed from every tribe of what? Sons of Israel. Now, people do a lot with this. They try to say, well, it doesn't really mean Israel. Boy, if I ever saw something that meant Israel, that would be it. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. I mean, how Jewish can you get? I think it's just mild. I think it's anti-Semitism or something that, that has trouble with what this clearly means. Some people pick at it and say, well, the, the tribe of Dan isn't there. So what? The tribe of Dan was, was, was worthless. They were idol worshipers and they never had any faith to take any territory and they dissolved. So there. That's what I think of the tribe of Dan. But there, you got, you got your 12 tribes. Look at it. You got Judah and Reuben and Gad and Asher and Naphtali and Manasseh and Simeon, and Levi, and Issachar, and Zebulun. And then it says Joseph, but Joseph had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And because he's already mentioned Manasseh, the tribe of Joseph's going to be Ephraim 12, and Benjamin. They're, they're mentioned right there. You have this order of Israel. People, there will be an, a work of the Holy Spirit. God has always reached out to the people of Israel. But he will not be denied. And there is going to be a mighty move of the, of the Spirit in gathering in. Is it just going to be a literal 144,000? I don't think so. I think the point of this is there will be a complete number, a sizable complete number from every tribe of Israel I will have come to me. God isn't a, particular, God isn't a numbers guy. You know, some people get into this thing. You know, who's going to be the 144,000? And if you're the 144,000 and first, you don't make it. And... I mean, that's silly. God, God doesn't work like that. God, the only people that are numbers guys are people with too much time on their hands and a calculator. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. And you got people just doing bizarre stuff. They just, they, they, don't, they don't see it spiritually. They, 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 try to, they try to 
take it like a book of magic or something. He's ta- but he sure says there are going to be believing Jews that turn to the Lord. Now, I want to establish this. I want this clear in your mind. So turn with me for a minute to, to Romans chapter 11. Acts Romans. Romans 11. And I will sample through here. You've got some references there. You can check them later. Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 is a parenthesis in the book of Romans in which Paul is trying to address the question why after thousands of years of the prophets prophesying the coming of the Messiah Jesus did so many Jews reject him? Now, not all did, and he'll make that point, but so many did. And he's, he says, what went on here? And his conclusion is this, that, that because Israel had developed to a place where they were trying to earn their righteousness by doing good works, they had lost the capacity to believe in faith. That the only way you're saved is by faith. And because they'd become, they turned their religion into a good works thing, they had lost the ability to, to believe. And so God took and used that mess where they are full of, full of unbelief and anger at Christianity. And just like he used Pharaoh in Egypt to drive the, the, the message of, of the miracles of God out to the whole world by making Pharaoh stubborn, he made Israel stubborn and they drove the gospel out to the Gentiles by persecuting Christians. Did you follow that? Yeah, that, that's, I just told you the message of 9, 10, and 11 in a, in a nutshell. But look, look at this, because there's important statements made here. Verse, chapter 11, verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? Meaning Israel. May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know that what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? And then you remember that passage where Elijah thought he was the only one left. And God says, no, I got 7,000 who haven't bowed their knee to Baal. God knows the hearts. Verse 5. In the same way, then, there has come to be at present a remnant according to God's gracious choice. There were thousands of Jews who did believe in Jesus Christ and were filled with the Holy Spirit. That was the early church. But it is, if it is by Grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. It is, it is, they had to believe in the grace of God. Um, let's go to 11. I say then that they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more would their fulfillment be? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy. Paul says, I was called to the Gentiles, but man, if I can win, some, win Jews, my fellow countrymen, it's just all the better. For if... And I hope by winning all of you Gentiles and by them seeing the Holy Spirit on you and the change in you and the love of God on you, I hope the, the Jewish people will realize their mistake and turn to the Jesus Christ that you believe in. That's what he just said. That it'll be, and if their rejection is reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Paul says, don't you ever forget that God can raise from the dead and he is going, he has not forgotten the 
Now I'll let your eye go down to verse 23. Just a couple more sample verses. You've got to get this. I want, I want it established in your mind. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in. He's talking about the tree of the family of God. Israel, unbelieving Jews, have been, have been cut off and pulled out from that tree, but they can be grafted back in. Don't you forget it, he says. They can, God wants them, and he will bring them back. Verse 25. I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. A partial hardening has happened to Israel. Now look at carefully. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Did you see that? This hardening went on. The gospel's driven out into the Gentiles. And we have just by the droves, the multiple billions of us Gentiles have believed in Jesus Christ. Why exactly it's difficult for the Jews to believe it? Is it, I, I'm not quite sure. But we're so dumb. We just, you know, it preaches the gospel. It's like, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't we? I mean, you know, you see a healing, you hear a miracle, somebody testifies to it, and you start crying, I want Jesus too. You know, We just sort of, we're coming in by the droves. So he's just making a harvest of people like us. But he's going to do a mighty work with Israel. He's not done yet. And there'll come a moment when the fullness of the Gentiles particularly has come in. And what's going to happen? And so all Israel will be saved just as it is written. God has promises to keep. And he is going to bring in Jewish people to Jesus Christ. Verse 28, from the standpoint of the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. From the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Let me explain what he just said. It doesn't say they're saved. People without Christ, people without faith, without repentance and faith, nobody's saved. Some people teach this two ways to salvation. Some people say, well, God has no promises to keep with Israel at all. Both are foolish. He clearly says he does. And yet you're clearly saved only through Christ, through faith and repentance. So what's the deal? Prayers are never forgotten. When you pray a prayer in faith, it does not ever die. I mean, even when you die. We saw one picture there where they collected them in bowls. Remember that? When you pray a prayer, they never die. Abraham and Sarah and, 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 and millions of godly Jewish people prayed for their children God promised their fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that he would do a work with their children, didn't he? And when he makes a promise, he never stops keeping it. What does that mean? It means he keeps reaching out and reaching to draw the hearts of their children. Now, this is not just a Jewish promise. It works for all believers. That's why it worked for Abraham and Sarah. It works for you too. When you pray for your children the pre and, the, and, and you pray in faith, believing that God will reach your children, the Lord hears you and sends his Holy Spirit and he never stops pursuing your children. How many of you had praying parents? Now, don't raise your hands yet. Praying parents or grandparents. And you became, you were a terror. I mean, you just drove everybody berserk. But the Lord would not let you go. 
and there was just a presence of God that pursued you and would not let you go. No matter how much you tried to sin, no matter how much you tried to harden your conscience, you couldn't seem to get away from the God of your grandparents or your, your, your mother or father. How many, now raise your hand. Look around. Look at that. See, that's, the, that's what he's referring to right there. And what he's saying is those promises are still at work. Those promises are still at work. It doesn't change with generations. It doesn't change because a thousand years went by. It doesn't change because time passed. God will never stop his work. The other day I was praying just in my own prayer time with my, for my family. And I started praying for my children, my grandchildren. I thought, well, great-grandchildren. And then I was reminded of that passage with, uh, with Hezekiah. where it was, who didn't, he, he was, The prophet told him to strike the arrows. Remember that? And he struck them three times. And the prophet was so frustrated with him. He said, why don't you strike at five at least? You would have won the battle. So I went, all right, children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren, great-great-great-great-grandchildren, great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren. And I just, Lord, I want all my generations. Bang, 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 bang. And I was believing for what I'm telling you right now. I'm believing that when I pray in faith that God hears me and that he will indeed go after my children, my great-grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, my great-great-grandchildren, my great-great-great-grandchildren until he comes again. You understand? All right, that's what's at work. That's the promise. Paul says, don't you think that God is faithless to what he promised the fathers? He still will yearn after them. Now, back to Romans, uh, Revelation 7, we're at the end. We're seeing this being fulfilled. Mark them, and I heard the number, 144,000. I'm going to read you something. I, I came across this in a, in a book called Epicenter. Joel Rosenberg, who wrote it, is, is, a, is a spirit-filled Jew. He has worked for Benjamin Netanyahu in Israel. He's worked for the State Department of the United States. He's got quite a background. And he talks about the things that he thinks are coming on the horizon now. But listen to this. Few people have any idea just how many Jewish people have come to faith in Jesus in recent years. But the numbers are dramatic indeed. More Jews are coming to faith in Jesus today than at any time since the first century. In 1967, when I was born, there were only five or six native Israeli believers in Jesus. And fewer than 250 Jewish believers in Jesus in all of the Holy Land. Today, there are more than 1,000 Sabra, that means uh, native-born Israelis, Christians, and some 10,000 Messianic Jews in Israel. Worldwide, in 1967, there were fewer than 2,000 Jewish followers of Jesus. Today, conservative estimates say there are at least 100,000 Jewish believers, while some put the number at over 300,000. One respected international Christian research agency says there are 132,000 Jewish believers connected to Messianic congregations and 200,000 Jewish believers in Jesus attending Gentile churches worldwide. For a follower of Jesus from an Orthodox Jewish heritage like myself, it is not only exciting, it is also startling evidence of an ancient prophecy coming to pass before our eyes. Jesus once spoke to the Jews of Israel, saying, For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
In other words, until Jewish people turn to him in dramatic numbers and get excited about his second coming, Jesus said he would delay his return. How many are enough to trigger the second coming? I have no idea. But the trend lines are exciting, and I believe many, many more Jews will turn to Jesus in the time leading up to the war of Gog and Magog and its immediate aftermath. That's another subject. We're not there yet. And I saw the angel of the Lord marking from every tribe of the nation of Israel. But that's not all that's there. And so before I close, I want you to read one more verse. Verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and every peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. How inclusive could he possibly be? From every people on earth, all this great mass. Notice there's just beyond numbering all the Gentiles that are there. And they're in these beautiful white robes. And by the way, you look really nice in those. <laughs> My wife watches what not to wear. And I, and I, so I'm, I realize that now this thing will probably be tapered a bit. It will, it will fit nicely around the neck. It's going to be beautiful. There you are in your white robe from every nation and every tongue. And there we are. And what are we doing waving palm branches? I mean, what does that remind you of? Palm Sunday, exactly. What happened on Palm Sunday? That was the time, actually it was the predicted day to the day where Jesus rode into Jerusalem as the Messiah on the foal of a donkey, fulfilling a prophecy from Zechariah. Here he comes. And it says the people picked up palm branches and they waved them and they threw them in the road and they cried out something. What did they cry out? Hosanna and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So there we are. Now, do you want to practice? All right. Why don't you go like this? Here we go. You got your palm branch and you're looking good in your white outfit. It's tapered, nicely formed around the neck. Here we are. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. It is God's mercy that prevented Jesus from fulfilling all the prophecies concerning him. God sent him first as a lamb so the sin of the world might be paid for and a way of escape from hell provided for those who repent and believe. But when he comes the next time, he'll be a warrior and a judge. Next time, he's the lion of God and he sets up the kingdom. But today, we celebrate now that he is the lamb. Behold the lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. I'm not giving an altar call, but let me say this. If you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if it's iffy, somebody's going to hand you this tray and it's got broken bread and it's got the, 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 the grape juice. And it speaks of the broken body of Jesus and his shed blood. You couldn't have a clearer way to receive him as your Lord and Savior. They're going to say the body of Christ broken for you. And what it means is that he bore your sin. 
Do you believe that? Do you give him your sin? Do you trust him that it's because of his death on the cross? Is he your lamb? Your lamb? See, when he's, been your, when he's the lamb of God to you, you have no fear of him as the lion of God. He will not come as your judge. He will come as your dearest friend. There'll be nobody you're happier to see. Tears will pour down your face. You'll be translated into a new body on the way up into the, into the heavens. As you cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When he comes with, with all of that power and all of that authority as warrior and judge, he's not your warrior and he's not your judge. He's your warrior in that he fights for you. People, he must be your lamb or he's a terrible lion. He is a ferocious lion. Don't kid yourself. There is not some gooey deal when you arrive there in heaven where you can sort of blame your mother and get off. You either have repented of your sins and confessed Christ has died and been broken for you and he is your savior or you are cast away. That's what it says. I don't care what others say. That's what the book says. So somebody's going to pass you this tray and we're going to say the body of Christ broken for you. And you can right now today just say, Lord, I believe you are the son of God. You bore on the cross my sins. Your body was broken for me. I believe. And what a better way than take it and eat it right into your heart. And then we take the cup and the cup speaks of the new covenant. Not only does Jesus bear your sins away, but he covers you with his righteousness and gives you all of his blessings. The whole new covenant. God now sees you in a whole new light because of his blood. You are a child of God, blessed of God, filled with the spirit because of his blood. Boy, you do those things, you walk out of here saved. You walk out of here born again. You're a child of God. You can't do those things. Repenting and giving him your sin, believing in what he did on the cross that hits your, his righteousness, that'll save you, folks. So as we pass this and take communion, most of us in here know him as the lamb, but if you don't, please receive the lamb of God. Please receive the lamb of God. Father, we thank you with all our hearts that in your mercy and your kindness and your patience, you allowed your son to only fulfill part of the prophecies, the atonement, the preaching of the gospel, the healing of the sick. Lord, thank you that those prophecies of which he comes as a judge and a warrior, you've held at bay until every last soul comes in. Thank you for waiting for us. Thank you for loving us from afar. Knowing us even back then. We bless you, Lord, that the lion will not come until the time you've appointed. But he surely will come. In Jesus' name we confess it. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.